0: podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. I was, um, I, I grew up in a Christian home and, um, from a very early age i mean i remember my, my dad was raised hindu but he he had accepted the lord by the time my sister and i were born so when we were when we were growing up we were raised in a christian home and um i, I would when i when i went to, see during my high school years we take these mission trips to different places and this was still in malaysia i lived in the states my middle school years we moved back to malaysia my high school years and um and so we would take these trips, and we'd go out from the city where we lived, and we'd go to these more rural areas. And and it was, um, you know, there's there's parts of Malaysia that are very very modern, and like any major city in the world. But then there's parts of it, uh, as you go uh, in, in different regions, that are more rural. And, uh, and so a lot of times they would take these mission trips and they would go into these areas that are a little more rural. In fact, uh, there's, this, uh, there's two states of Malaysia that are on this whole other island and uh, you could fly over there and it's, it's quite rural over there. I mean, there's people that live in those homes on stilts, you know, so that the floods don't kind of uh, creep into their homes and it's, it's very much village life. And, and uh, I remember preparing to go on one of these trips and um, realizing that I was going to have a, to give a testimony And I was quite anxious about this because it occurred to me that I didn't really have a testimony. And uh, I had some friends who could say things like, you know, they could tell about how they were raised, you know, Buddhist or Hindu or whatever. And they had this story of how they made a stand for God and they were persecuted by their families, but they stayed strong. And, you know, you can too. And theirs was going to be really good. And, uh, and I started to think, well, what am I going to get up and say? Uh, because I thought, well, well, talk about my life story or my testimony, and there's really not much there. Um, and, and so, you know, your friends, they try to be encouraging, and so they say that the thing that maybe you've heard, um, well, you know, don't worry, isn't it a testimony that um, God kept you all these years, you know? Anybody ever heard that, you know? And I, I don't know how, how many of you grew up in church or not, but if you did grow up in church, uh, and you hear the words testimony, it's just sort of like, well, I don't know. I mean, I you know, didn't really have this rebellious past or this, you know, sordid stories to tell of how I was dealing drugs out of the back of my car in Pine Creek or, you know, whatever. You know, it's just sort of, you know, there's not a lot of stuff sometimes. Um, but I think that way of thinking about, quote-unquote, salvation or how we got saved, because when you think about testimony, what it really is, or or at least how we've come to understand that phrase is, uh, it's the story of how you got saved, right? If I were to say, what's your testimony? Oh, you mean the story of how I got saved? Um, And we tend to think of it almost as if it was an event, that our salvation was this event, and there was this moment, and then you know we, we we were messed up, and then all of a sudden someone brought us to church, and we heard a speaker, or we saw a drama, and we were so moved, and we raised our hand, and we came down front, we prayed a prayer, we got a booklet, we got saved, and that there's certainly nothing inaccurate about that per se. It's just that when we talk about salvation, most of us are thinking about a about a particular event that all of a sudden changed everything, and now because of that event, we get to go to this magical place called heaven, as though salvation was about, okay, hey, guess what, mom and dad are taking you to Disney World, woo, and so salvation is the day you heard that mom and dad were taking you to Disney World, and heaven is Disney World when you actually go, and and the in-between days are just miserable, it's what we call school, you know, So, so, and that's sort of, without realizing it, that's kind of how we think about this Christian life, which might explain why we have such a hard time figuring out what we're supposed to do in the here and now. But when Paul and these guys talked about salvation, they weren't thinking about an event. They were thinking about God's massive plan to rescue and restore all things, to set it right. And you, you know this when we've been studying the book of Ephesians. As we've talked through Ephesians 1 and now into Ephesians 2. You recognize, I've, I've said this a number of times. That Ephesians gives us this cosmic view of God's plan of salvation, that God, Creator God, made His world, loved His world, but saw that His world began to be infected by evil. Some of His creation, and even us, humans, the ones who are supposed to tend His good world, allowed this infection of evil in, right? Right? And so from the beginning, even before the foundations of the world, were told that God ha- and God in Christ had his plans made to one day rescue and redeem all things. Salvation is this big word that encompasses all of it. It's not just about a prayer or a moment that you say, okay, good, now I get to go to heaven. Because... And we've talked about this a lot now on Sunday nights. Maybe you're sick of hearing me say this. But heaven is this place where God uh, fully is and, 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 and operates. It's, it's God's space that runs parallel to our space. But do you know that in the end, like right now, if there's a Christian, if there's a person who dies, yes, they go to heaven. But do you know in the end, God's plan is not that we're all going to get airlifted and live in this parallel space called heaven that God's goal in the end is that heaven would descend on earth, remake it, remake earth. There will be this thing that the Bible talks about from Isaiah all the way through to Revelation, new heaven, new earth. And in, in that place, we'll live again with resurrected bodies. Just when you thought Christianity was weird, it just got weirder. Because <laughs> for some of you, that's like, ooh, what? But the end goal is going to be just like the beginning. The place, the Eden, where heaven and earth met fully together. Now with that view in mind, salvation then is God's massive plan to take the world as it is now and make it all to where it one day will be that. That's his big plan. And if you, if you see it that way, then it makes sense why all through the New Testament, these guys don't consistently talk about salvation in only the past tense. They don't. You'll read a verse like the one we'll read tonight where it says, by grace you have been saved. And you're like, oh great, I'm so glad for that day that I was saved. And then you'll read a verse that says, it is the power of God at work to those who are being saved. You know, being saved, no, I I mean, I'm already, I mean, I said the prayer thing. And, th- and then you'll read other verses where it says, okay, wait, there's coming this day where we're all looking and Paul says, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And, and even in Revelation, those who endure till the end will be saved. No, 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 I, I, I prayed the prayer thing. And you recognize that salvation is past, it's present, it's future, because it encompasses the whole of what God is doing. Now, if you see it that way, Chances are you're not going to see salvation as this transaction or a chess game. I've heard preachers try to describe our relationship with God like a chess game where salvation is God's move where he says, hey, look, I've died on, I died on the cross for you. Woohoo! your move. And then we say, oh, um, gee, what can I do? Uh, maybe I'll do this or maybe I'll tell lots of people. Maybe I'll go on missions trips. You know, maybe I'll sign up. Maybe I'll be a missionary because you know, it's my move now. And we have this sort of chess game analogy of where it's like, well, God does his part, and now it's up to you. But if you think like that, then really what you've started to say is that grace is only something you needed once. Grace is only something you needed once, and you might as well say to God, hey, thanks for that. Appreciate it. Wow, grace. Woo, grace. But I got it from here, God. I'll take it from here. Now, we would never really say that. But unless we expand salvation to be all of it, yes, the redeeming of our hearts, yes, the declaring of uh, us to be righteous because we're in Christ, yes, the making us alive like we talked about last week, yes, all of that, but also all this, and if you recognize that if this is salvation and all of salvation depends on God and his grace, then is there any point along the way that we outgrow our need of grace? No, but if you view salvation as this transaction and you prayed this prayer and you said this thing and you got the booklet and you signed the card and all those are fine and wonderful helpful things, not knocking any of it, we do it, I advocate it, it's great, but that's not the end of the deal. God is not saying, hey, here's a deal for you, sign the bottom line and woohoo, it's all yours. Now it's up to you. And I think part of, the, uh, part of the reason we've had such a confusing time trying to understand, okay, now wait a second, now we're not saved by works, but we're supposed to do works, and, what about, uh, and part of the reason we've had such angst about how to figure out how to fit both of those pieces is because we're not thinking large enough about salvation, that it's massive, and that it all depends on God's grace. Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 10, this is our text for tonight, It says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then he goes on, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're going to take these three verses, and we're just going to pick uh, three sections, three phrases here, and look at them just a little bit more closely and, and to see how the Lord would, would speak to us through that, okay? This first phrase, um, we've been saved by grace, you have been saved. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it in one little phrase here, we are rescued by grace. Again, if we're not careful, we'll begin to think that grace is a, uh, an idea that was unique to Jesus, that all the way up until Jesus, there was no grace. And then God sort of all of a sudden had it, you know, a better night's sleep the night before or whatever and woke up happier and said, You know, let's be kind to everyone. Now, we'd, again, we'd never say that. But somewhere in the back of our minds, we, we tend to think that grace is this thing that Jesus brought. Oh, thank God for Jesus. And if not for Jesus, there was this angry dad that was ready to smite. Is that the picture? Is that the idea? Because sometimes the way we talk about it, it is that. Sinner's in the hands of an angry God, and we're getting, you better be careful. God's ready to just smite. And then Jesus said, no, don't do it. Hit me instead. Take my life. Is that that this sort of division among the God? Is that a Trinitarian way to think about salvation? Is that how Jesus talked about what he was doing on earth? Remember what Jesus said, he says, look, I am in the Father, the Father is me, I only do what I see the Father doing. The picture is that God in Jesus is working out his plan to rescue the whole world. Was there? What is this grace there in the Old Testament? You may remember a few weeks ago, if you were here, when we talked about actually tithing of all things, uh, we talked about how there actually is grace in the Old Testament, You say, well, no, but there was law. I mean, wasn't there a law? Okay, but let's back up because the Bible doesn't begin with and then God said, here are ten commandments, right? It doesn't open that way, does it? It opens with God making the heavens and the earth and humanity rebelling and creating structures of evil and oppression that continued their revolt or solidified their revolt against God. That's what Babel is. Anyway, and then you get to, it's all of this, the Genesis story races all the way up to get us to the moment where the story really begins. You, can almost, you almost get the feeling that that's what they think, or that's how they're narrating it. And so in Genesis 12, what happens? God calls Abraham. And he calls Abraham's family. He says, I'm choosing you. Now, here we need to ask ourselves on what basis did God call Abraham? Out of grace. He says, Abraham, I'm choosing. Now, you can respond to Abraham. Abraham had this choice. Would you respond with faith? Or would you say, "Mm, no? And we know Abraham responds in faith, and that faith is tested over and over again, right? It's certainly tested when he offers Isaac, and if you're familiar with the story. But when God chooses this family to work through, is that grace or is that works? It's grace. And then because he's chosen that family, that family's descendants, you know, later on they start living in Egypt and, and, and you know the story and they're kind of living there and they're doing pretty good and they got there because of Joseph, but then a pharaoh came into power that didn't remember Joseph and he was like, what, what's, with the, what's with all the Hebrews in Egypt? Let's get rid of, well, let's put them to work, you know, and so makes them slaves and, you know, maybe if you've seen Prince of Egypt or whatever, you know this scene, okay, bricks, straw, Anyway, so, they, you know, the, the song, right? And they're, they're doing, they become slaves and deliver us, you know. And, and God sends Moses to rescue them. And what does God say to Moses at the burning bush? I've heard the cries of my people. Why are they his people? Because he chose them. On what basis? Grace. And so, you could say that he chose them by grace, that he rescues them from Egypt. By grace. All, in all of the Old Testament, the central saving story that shaped everything else in the Old Testament was the story of God rescuing Israel from Egypt. And that salvation story, if you will, is a salvation that happened because of grace. And after he saves them, he takes them out and then gives them a law. And do you know that it makes sense that you only give rules to someone that's already yours. The, the neighbor kids were playing in their yard this afternoon, and our yard doesn't have any fences, so we could hear them. Now, what if I ran out there and said, Hey, kids, can you get in and take your bath right now? It's dinner time. I think my neighbor would have not taken too kindly. What? I can't tell his kids what to do because they're not my kids. The giving of the Torah, the giving of the law, is proof that Israel belonged to God. It was never a way of becoming the people of God. It was proof that they were the people of God. That's, we, we, we've got to catch that. And, and then to follow Israel's story and to understand why they valued the law so much. Because we tend to think they loved being legalists, right? You hear this all the time with Pharisees. Oh, they just loved being legalists. Do you know why the Jews of Jesus' day loved the law so much? Because about 150, 170 years before Jesus showed up, they were overrun by the Syrians. And there were three things that the Jews were not allowed to do. They were not allowed to circumcise their young boys. They were not allowed to observe Sabbath. And they were not allowed to study the Torah. And then there was this massive revolt where they overthrew the Syrians. It's the Maccabean revolt. It's what the Jews celebrate when they celebrate Hanukkah. They overthrew them and got back their worship and their practice and their habits don't you think they would cherish the freedom to study the Torah again? Of course they did. That's why the law was so precious to them, because they could say, oh, the, the Torah, the law, this is what makes us God's people. Mwah, we're going to study it. We're going to love it. We're going to learn it. We're going to obey it. This is proof that we are God's people. The love of the law that these guys had was because it was proof. It was their badge of being God's people. So, okay, well, wait a second. I mean, isn't there this whole thing where Paul says that Christ is the end of the law? Do you know that word there for end doesn't mean destruction? That word there for end means goal or completion or finish line. It's the word telos. It's the designed goal. Christ, to rephrase Romans ten four, is the designed goal of the law. That when Christ arrived, he said himself, Look, I didn't come to abolish the law. He said it. Well, what, what do you mean? He did, he's the fulfillment of it. He's the thing that the law at its best was foreshadowing and hinting at and speaking of. And so when Jesus shows up, he's saying, This is, I am in myself, the culmination of the plan that I set in motion with Abraham and his family. It's one God with one plan of salvation from the very beginning. It's not, well, this was, there was this God, and he used to be kind of hot-tempered and angry, and he used to really require people to do a bunch of stuff, and man, I'm so glad I didn't live in those days. I hear Christians talk like that sometimes, and I think, that, I, I just don't know how you could say that. Because you, what you're basically saying then is there's two gods. And, or, or that it's one God who changed his mind, who was schizophrenic, which is worse. But what we believe is one God, one plan of salvation all throughout time. Do you believe it? And when Jesus shows up, he understood that. He says, look, I am the one that the Scriptures spoke of. I am the one that the law spoke of. I came to fulfill it. And Paul later says, yeah, 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 Christ is the finish line of the law. It's the finish line. It's the one who says, yeah, this is what it was leading up to all this time. It's the pinnacle, the climactic moment of the story. How did we get there? We are rescued by grace. (laughs) Grace has always been God's way. That's what I'm trying to say to you tonight. Grace is not something new for God. It's part of who he is. I think sometimes we think that, well, God is omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. And he sometimes is loving. But remember what John says, God is love. That it's as much a part of his nature as everything else. That grace is God's way because God is love. Does our sin anger him? Absolutely. Does it offend him? Sure. Does our rebe- is our rebellion an affront to him? Of course. But his love, because he is love, found a way to go beyond it. His love found a way to go beyond it. We're rescued by grace. That's amazing. Honestly, when the Reformation happened 400 years ago, this was sort of this rediscovery thing for the Western church of saying that, okay, look, you don't have to jump through these hoops and pay for stuff and buy penance and, and all this stuff. And, of course, Martin Luther played a huge role in that. But it's interesting, if you're a student of the Reformation or a student of church history and you want to read more and all this stuff, uh, there's, a, there's a marked difference between Luther and Calvin because Luther, to a large degree, misunderstood Judaism. Judaism. He thought he was convinced that Moses was a legalist, and so he had no patience for understanding much of this Jewish religion. Calvin, on the other hand, articulated exactly what I just said about how God gave the law to a people that he had already rescued by grace. Calvin kind of got that. That's just a little tidbit if you if you like the church history thing. We are rescued by grace. Grace is always God's way. Always. It's 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 part of him. And then the second phrase, we have no room to boast. Paul says that it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We have no room to boast in this. Now, chances are, most of you are not likely to boast about how good you've been. Most of us deal with shame or the feeling of, well, I'm just kind of, you know, I I, I didn't deserve it or I'm not good enough or whatever. But you know what tends to happen when you feel a lot of shame and, and insecurity you overcompensate. You ever worked for a person, of course, you've never been this person, but you ever worked for a person who knew they were a bad boss and they were making lots of decisions that were costing the company money, and so to compensate for it, they, they began to bark out orders in, in a more harsh way? You, you ever had a, you know, don't raise your hand if your managers here or your boss, you know, but, but you can think of someone like that, who they're, they're, they're sort of like, man, dude, what's, what's the deal, you know, and it's almost like what they lack in certainty they make up for in confidence, you know? Like, I don't really know the answer, but I'm going to talk with more, you know. It's that sort of a thing. And I wonder if that's what, what happens to us, is we, we don't have any room to boast, and we're aware of our shame and our shortcomings. And so we sort of say, well, yeah, but you know what? I do this really good, or I can do, you know. Or you've sort of been in the Christian thing a while that you feel pretty good about yourself, you know. It's like, well, no, I mean, grace was... Appreciate grace, you know, thank you Jesus for the cross, sort of look back, that was something in the past, right, grace is past, right, and in the present, you know, look at, look at, I mean, look at the discipline I have, I mean, I read my Bible, I mean, I get up at five in the morning, I mean, I, you know, I mean, how many of you do, you know, and maybe you've run into people like that at your small group or, you know, hopefully not here, of course, but maybe at your previous church, Um, you've run into people, who say things like that or just always want to tell you, you know, like, well, you know, they couldn't just say, this is what I've been thinking about. They have to say, well, you know, when I was up at 5 o'clock this morning praying for an hour, uh, I thought the Lord really, like, really? Did you have to throw that in there? You know? So there's a version of this in, like, um, in terms of our work and what we do for God. It's like, well, you know, I mean, I, how was your week? Well, it was great, you know, I mean, I got to share the gospel with 13 people and that was just yesterday, you know. Like, wow, great, I mean, good, you know, do you want a medal or something? I mean, and there's this sense of boasting because we have this in our heads that we were so unworthy and we were so in need of God's grace, but God saved us, and so now we've got to do all this stuff and we're going to do this stuff. And once we actually do start changing, it becomes like, well, I couldn't boast about that. I mean, I was awful back then, but now i got something to brag about. And so, but friends, the truth is, that stuff is still the result of grace. That stuff is still the result of God at work in you. Listen to this in Isaiah. I love this. This is Isaiah seeing, talking about God and seeing God's plan of salvation. He says, Let all the world look to me for salvation, for I am God, there is no other. I have sworn by my own name, I have spoken the truth, I'll never go back on my word. Every knee will bend to me and every tongue will confess allegiance to me. Sounds like something Paul would later write about Jesus. The people will declare the Lord is the source of all my righteousness and strength. I love that phrase. The people will declare the Lord is the source of all my righteousness and strength. What if that became what we really believe? And yeah, there, there's going to be stuff that shows up. There's going to be disciplines. Going to be, you know, but, but what if you really believe that you, the Lord is the source of all my righteousness and strength? And all who were angry with him will come to him and be ashamed. In the Lord, all the generations of Israel will be justified, and in him they will boast. In him. Not in their, themselves. Jeremiah echoes this later in Jeremiah 9. He says, this is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom or the powerful boast in their power or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone. What, what, what? That they truly know me. And understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love. And who brings justice and righteousness to the earth that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. What does it mean to boast in knowing the Lord? Because, again, that sounds like saying, well, you know, I mean, I, I've been a Christian for 10 years. I mean, I really know the Lord. Is that what he's saying? Now, how long, you know, now I really know. Boasting in knowing the Lord is knowing that the Lord is the one who demonstrates unfailing love. If you really know that the Lord is gracious, if you really know that the Lord demonstrates unfailing love, your boasting becomes totally on Him. And you start to say, you know what, I, you know, I, yeah, I'm grateful for all this stuff, but you know what, it's, that's just another sign of God's graciousness. You know what, that's just a sign of God's unfailing love. And, and, and my, my, your, your, your speech then begins to betray that you really know Him. And you know that He is unfailing in His love. Boasting in knowing the Lord does not mean you brag about how long you spend in your quiet time. Boasting in knowing the Lord means that you understand that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father in heaven. That the Lord is the source of all my righteousness and strength. Psalm 34. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I love that little phrase. The humble. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Why? Because it's the humble who recognize that they need it too. If you begin to boast of the Lord, and, 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 or, or maybe you hear someone else say, man, I'm just so grateful for the way that God has been good to me, and, and kind to me, and gracious to me, and if there's a little ounce that rises up in your heart like it sometimes does in mine of, of saying, oh, come on, get over it, you know, like, I mean, or, or sort of this thing of like, well, yeah, but you're pretty good. I mean, or you, I mean, you're, you're not bad. I mean, you're, you're a pretty good investment for God, right? I mean, He died for you, true, but, but, but it's kind of like that L'Oreal commercial, right? Because you're worth it, right? I mean, just, I just read it somewhere once. Uh, you hear someone boasting about the Lord being the source, and you say, well, I, I, uh, sure, sure, He's the source, but after all, uh, I mean, I've done some pretty good stuff that might be an indicator that we're not really fully at this place of humility. Because the truth is, if you hear anybody saying, oh man, no, I don't deserve any credit for that. I mean, honestly, you know, you know the Lord, this is just the Lord. You say, oh, I rejoice, the humble hear it and are glad. Because the humble would say, hey, me too. Yeah, I mean, I, and I'm not, listen, I'm not talking about stuff. I'm not talking about someone saying, yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's Lexus. I mean, God gave it to me, you know maybe he did maybe i i'm not talking about stuff i'm talking about recognizing our absolute dependence on the unfailing love of god that we never outgrow our dependence for we never grow to the place where it's like oh hey god thanks i've matured so much i don't need this anymore it's, it, we, we, it's never there we're always at the place where we say oh god and, and 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 by the way that's not a way of saying that you aren't growing because sometimes people say Oh, no, I'm just always in need of God's grace. And that's really just another way of saying, I'm not even going to try to grow. Right? I mean, you, you've had those conversations where you talk to someone and, and you're like, man, are you even like, you making an attempt to read your Bible or to know God, you know? No, but, man, I'm just dependent on God's grace. It's like, well, okay. Praise God. I pray that that grace will wake you up, light a fire under you, you know? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about saying that even as we grow, even as we respond, every yes that we say to God is a yes that we can say because His grace is at work in us. Everything becomes, we recognize the source of it. Look, the source of this is is not me, it's Him. The Lord is the source of my righteousness and strength, like Isaiah said. And then this third phrase, the way this text wraps up, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's workmanship. Now that's a remarkable idea. Because if your view of salvation, again, is this one event to get your passport stamped for heaven, then it's hard to think about workmanship or works or an assignment or a role because it's like, Eh, aren't we all just kind of killing time till we get there? And there's a lot of Christians who think that. So, well, just well, this doesn't matter, right? We're just kind of killing time, and and really nothing matters except if we win souls, right? I mean, that's the only thing. Really, there's nothing else here. I mean, it doesn't matter how I do my job, doesn't matter how I raise my kids, as long as I win souls, then I get up there, right? That's like, I don't know, what is that? Nihilism. Everything is meaningless. That's like Christian nihilism. Everything is meaningless except for what we can do to get people up to some disembodied heaven. But that's not, right? Salvation's not this, this one-time event thing, this sort of... God saved us with something in mind. In fact, he says, it's works that he prepared in advance for us to do. That means when he created you, he had something in mind for you to do, a role, a job, an assignment. And his hope was that you'd say yes, and then in saying yes, you become from dead to alive, like we talked about last week. And then because you're alive, you can begin to get on with this thing that he's prepared in advance for you to do. In other words, saying yes to Jesus and saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, that's not the end, that is the beginning. That's why Paul says it's new creation. That sounds like the start, not the end. And so having been the recipients of grace, what now? Paul wants us to know that we're God's masterpiece. That there's something, there's there's a thing that he's prepared in advance for us to do. And and, and part of that does hint at a way that we're supposed to live, for sure. In later chapters in Ephesians, Paul gets pretty specific about sexual morality and and things like that. And look, it's not as if we're saying there's not a way to live. There is a way to live. It's spirit-empowered, for sure. But you know, there's there's another we'll talk plenty about that but there's another thing that Paul may be hinting at here when he says works that God has prepared in advance for us to do and it's not so much morality or ethics or good behavior though that's certainly true I think there's also this 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 tone of uh, art to it in fact that phrase that you are God's workmanship is a uh, art language sort of phrase you are his masterpiece and he's prepared many masterpieces for you to start working on you are God's great painting and he's given you a canvas with a few paintings in mind for you to do yourself now that all of a sudden is like whoa that, that's interesting what if this masterpiece this thing he's given us to work on is like a score uh, as part of an orchestra piece I played in middle school band, and uh, I played trumpet. It was, it was all right, you know. I mean, my parents stuck through a lot of miserable rehearsal in the basement time, you know. And then I played through high school. I tried to take it into the worship world. That was when, like Phil Driscoll, was really big, you know. I tried to do the worship trumpet thing. I don't know if yeah, okay. Um, and uh, uh, you know, it was cool in my church and um, in Malaysia. And then, um, and then I got to ORU, and nobody was playing trumpet in worship bands anymore, but there was ska. Do you remember ska, like ska music? But I wasn't quite cool enough to be in a ska band, so I joined the ORU orchestra, and, and I thought, okay, that's kind of cool, get some, you know, brush up on my chops, and the, the trouble is, it's been so long since I'd really been playing seriously, and so I was assigned um, third trumpet. There were three of us. Uh so, you know, if it wasn't bad, but, but I realized that, that third, the, the score for third trumpet was not as interesting as the score for first trumpet. Now, first trumpet, they got to play all the, the melody line stuff, the, you know, whatever. And like third trumpet had to play, I mean, it was like nothing that would stretch the, you know, just just give me some middle range notes. And, and there was a lot of bars of rest on the score, you know? <laughs> If you've ever been in band, I mean, that's like the worst thing ever. You're sitting there, you're listening to the music, you're kind of zoning up. You're like, oh, I lost count. You're like, one, two, you know, 40, like, one, two, 41, two, you know. Like, oh, 50 bars of rest. When's my part? You know? It's easy to sort of feel like the assignments or the part that we play consists of a lot of Rest and unspectacular notes. I'm not playing the high stuff. And I, occasionally I didn't do it, but I was tempted to sort of look over at First Trumpets music and just try to play along with it. I, did, I didn't do it, <laughs> mainly because I didn't think I could. <laughs> but it's easy to sort of feel like, okay, okay, I've been saved by grace. Now, Lord, what are you going to use me to do? Okay, God, I am ready to be the next Billy Graham. God's like, well, I just, you know, I really would love it if you'd focus on your kids right now and just, yeah, just. God, that's a that's a lot of bars of rest. I really want that, but 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 this is the sheet of music I've put in front of you. You're my masterpiece, and I want you to participate with me in 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 playing this masterpiece. But 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 this is your sheet of music. But but God, what about me and you? And this is, again, one of the places where our Jesus and me, Western Christianity, really breaks down. Because if it is Jesus and you, then all of us should be playing trumpets volunteer, a solo piece that could be done by one trumpet player. But it's not. We're part of a symphony. We're part of a massive symphony. And it's not Jesus and you. It's Jesus and all of us. It's Jesus and not just all of us who are his people on this earth at this time, but it's Jesus and all the ones who have been in him prior to us. We're joining that symphony too. That in a sense, there have been a couple thousand years of rest, bars of rest, before your part of the music came along. But here we are, playing our role. And if you are discouraged about it, remember that you are God's masterpiece. That he designed you to play this part. And that's not to say, oh, okay, I'm not going to be, be stretched and try to grow and add. No, no, no. Do all those things in the same way that a member of an orchestra should practice and get better at their instrument and familiarize themselves with the score. And, and, and understand, you've got to do all those things, absolutely. But here's the piece of music set in front of you. Play it. Play it. We've been saved by grace. We're rescued by grace. We've got no room to boast. So if you've got no more room to boast then play this sheet of music that's in front of you because we're not looking for first chair trumpet players all across the board. We're looking for a symphony that will sing of God's praise, play His praise and His glory. Amen? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) As we close, in one of the notes that I was studying through this week and commentary stuff, it gave this... um, This beautiful picture of talking about our faith in Christ and grace and our works or our working out stuff, working out the salvation. And it gave this picture of grace being like oxygen. It's the thing that brings us life. And faith is us breathing it in. We believe in you, Jesus. We receive your grace. Breathing it in and getting on with this assignment that God has given us is like breathing out. It's like exhaling. Both are part of being alive. Breathing in and breathing out are both signs of life. Faith, taking in, by faith we take in this grace that God has offered us. It's awesome. And as we work out in our workplaces, in our homes, with our friends, we exhale this grace. Both are signs of being alive. Last week we talked about we've been we were dead, but we are now alive. Since we're alive, let's breathe it in, breathe it out, breathe it in, and breathe it out. A person who holds their breath too long. not a good sign for life it's usually a sign that they might need the heimlich maybe some of you may need the heimlich you're breathing in the grace thank god's sake that's great that's great that's great but i've got a masterpiece prepared for you You're my masterpiece, and I've got a canvas in front of you that I want you to participate with me in creating. Would you? Or maybe others of you are so caught up in working for God, which is great, except that your work for God is really coming from a place of fear and panic. You hear somebody doing that? They're either in labor or they're in trouble. They're, They're out of shape, you know? It's me after climbing the stairs or whatever, you know. It's just, it's a sign that this is a lot of work. And maybe some of you, that's where you're at. You're like, oh, I I, got to do this and I got to serve and I got to volunteer and I got to... And God's saying, would you stop? Would you breathe in grace that's freely given? And freely you have received, so freely... And a healthy rhythm of breathing in and breathing out is what keeps us alive. What keeps us alive in Christ is this healthy rhythm of saying, okay, I need to just inhale. I need to take in the grace of God again. I believe it. Thank you. I believe it. I receive it. And then to say, God, help me as I'm talking with this person that I really get irritated with. Help me to be patient. Help me to show your love. Help me to create a masterpiece with my family. Help me to create a masterpiece with my children. Help me to create a masterpiece with this home, with our friendships, with our life. We want to participate in the masterpiece, the symphony that our Father has put together. Amen. Let me stand tonight and pray. If you would do this maybe take a deep breath in would you just a physical thing of saying God yeah man, we're taking in your grace breathe out yeah God keep us in the rhythms of grace keep us from the unhealthiness of shame or panic or fearfulness that keeps us trying to work like crazy keep us from the rhythm that is just receiving in but forgetting about an assignment that you've given us each day each moment, each hour to be Messiah's hands and feet to be your body oh Father thank you for your gracious love thank you that you through Jesus have been working to rescue and redeem the whole world, Jesus thank you for giving your life Holy Spirit, thank you that you're at work in us. Oh God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for making us a masterpiece, even though we don't see it fully yet. And God, help us to participate with you in the canvases of our workplace, of our homes, of our friendships, of our lives. Help us to take it seriously, God. Forgive us for not taking it seriously. Forgive me for not taking it seriously. God, just to look at that sheet of music that you put in front of us, the people, the the, the friendships, the relationships that you've placed in front, to take it with seriousness and to realize that even if we feel like we're counting bars of rest, we're still part of your symphony of salvation. We love you. It's in Jesus the Messiah's name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. Let's thank God for his grace.